Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Coming up tonight, four weeks into the NFL, five into college football, I've got six trends, six storylines that have staying power behind them to get into on both college and NFL. We're going to do that for the rest of the show. So this show is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to lay out a baseline thought for you here quickly. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to get right into these lists for the rest of the hour. Now, I want to talk to you first, though, tonight about balance and exhalation. This industry, meaning mine, sports talk, sports journal, whatever you want to call it, but especially the performing side of it, not really the print side of it, but I guess you could include the print side of it as well. Bloviation and gas baggery, how about we call it that, exists on the fringes and the extremes. Very, very rarely do you hear well-reasoned takes that come with a wealth of knowledge behind them. What we all instead find ourselves falling back on in this industry is the crutch of the overreaction and the crutch of the hot take. I try. And fail miserably miserably a lot of the time. And I'm certainly unsuccessful to be sure many times. I try not to do that as often as possible. Because eventually the overreaction becomes unsustainable. Meaning that the takes are so often going to be wrong. And no one in sports is usually held accountable for this stuff. It would be hard for me to quantify this myself on this show. But at some point. As we continue to expand here on the Big Six brand here on 104.5 The Zone, there will come a time when I've got somebody on my show staff that can do this for me. Every take I have, when I have a take, whatever it is, I want it to have nuance. I want it to have balance. And when I'm wrong, I want it to be recorded. And when I'm right, I want it to be recorded. It's dangerous because we talk about so many things, often without the full picture, because the sneaky little secret is, We can't see everything either. So a lot of times we are using as much knowledge as we have in front of us, but we're going to be wrong as much as we're right. Nobody talks about when they're wrong. I want this show to be accountable in that way. But there are takes, folks, that you can set your watch to in sports media. After Monday night's win over my Broncos, I knew what was coming next from many hosts. I worked in national radio for a couple of years. And then I saw it materialize right before my eyes on TV and on Sports Talk Radio the next day. It was clear as day to me. Even though the Chiefs won that game, what was coming next? Oh, Pat Mahomes, he's not that good. It's the easiest take in the world with which to try and draw a phone call or draw some kind of tweet in one direction or another. Folks, we don't know enough yet to say yes or no about Pat Mahomes in terms of staying power. If I had to predict it today... I would suggest Pat Mahomes will be a top five quarterback in two years, top 10 next year. He's going to win double digit games this year. Andy Reid is a tremendous offensive mind. There are weapons everywhere. He's got a running game as well. And yes, he's very accurate and has an all time special arm. 
most of the anti-Mahomes sentiment was purely built around finding something unique to say. Literally, people in sports talk, all of us, sit there and we watch sporting events in our recliners or on our sofas or in the sports bar, and we think to ourselves, what do I have to say about this that no one else does? Ah, I'll be the one to say Mahomes fans need to pump the brakes. I'll be the one on that island. But while trying to be unique or trying to be a contrarian, almost everybody ended up saying the exact same thing. And it's not sustainable to have that take, except in a world where there's no accountability, minus Fred Siegel and freezing cold takes on Twitter, for being wrong. Look, I fell into that trap two years ago when I said on Twitter in 2016, and how do I know this? Because someone actually dug it up and sent it to me over the weekend. That of all the top five quarterback draft picks of the past several years, Jared Goff was the most likely to bust. Yes, I was wrong. At least for now. It certainly looks like I was wrong. But balance in life is important. That is how you can be sustainable. If you starve yourself trying to lose weight, it will not work. First of all, you're not going to be healthy. Second of all, you're eventually going to crack underneath it and you're going to put all that weight back on and maybe even add some to it. If you kill yourself working out and don't rest your body or realize your limits, you're going to hurt yourself and then you're not going to be able to do anything. If you have extreme opinions, whether it's political or in sports or whatever else, you are eventually going to alienate a lot of people and also eventually you're going to have to lie to yourself and others to keep those positions up amidst any evidence to the contrary. If you want a prime example of that in sports, look to Skip Bayless, who will stick with his take till the bitter end just because he can't admit anything otherwise. So he will take any evidence that would harm him and just throw that in the corner like it doesn't matter. Another example, you could cram for a test. But if you're not regularly paying attention, if you're not reading the material, you're going to flunk every pop quiz. And you're going to retain none of that knowledge past the test you're trying to memorize the information for. Folks, we live in a world that often subsists and thrives on compromise and on open-mindedness. Thus, here, I'm going to try to fight against overreaction, and I'm going to ask you to do the same. If you want to be taken seriously in any discussion, be opinionated, but also be willing to listen and know how to argue against your own point as strenuously as you make your own point. This creates nuance and it creates growth. Is this a blip or is this a trend? The term fluke comes to mind. What I don't want on this show as often as I can pull it off from me first and also from you when you chime in is flukiness in your reactions. We want balance here. We need balance in our lives. What is sustainable and what is going off this price is right cliffhanger game and leaving you without that new appliance bundle? Knowing the difference is how you find the happy medium. By the way, that phrase I looked it up. First recorded in 1778. Used to be known as the golden mean based on timeless ancient math principles. I hate math. I love happiness. Up next, six trends, not blips, that we're seeing in the NFL and college football. Yes, there will be opinions here, but they're reasoned. Plus a couple of mea culpas from me. Accountability. When I'm wrong, you're going to know it from me as often as I can. That's next. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. 
Welcome back in. Big Six here on 1045 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. You can follow me there. So we talked about balance in that first segment. And I told you that I was going to give you some balance during this show. And so this segment, I'm going to give you a list of six. And then in the next segment, I'm also going to give you a list of six. Both of them having to do with football. And then we're going to end the show with What the What Wednesday. So stick with us for the remainder of the hour. But the six things that I am seeing right now in the National Football League that are not hot takes, these are, you've sat back and you've watched four games, and you can now start to assess what is happening in the league. And there are some things that are just impossible to deny at this stage. And you know what? Things can change. But four weeks into the season, you're starting to get a hold on things. And I'll go ahead and start with this. The Steelers and the Falcons appear to be broken because of their defense more than anything else. The Steelers have another loss, this time in division on Sunday Night Football, to what looks like a pretty good Ravens team where Joe Flacco's all of a sudden playing really good football. The defense seems to be relatively stout. That ought to be a great matchup. Here in Nashville on the 14th against the Titans, particularly if both those two teams win this Sunday. Big Ben, not really elite at this point in his career. I'm not sure he's top five either. I said that before the season when Mike Sando put out his deal where he talks to the 50 people inside the league about their feelings on various quarterbacks and put them into tiers. I didn't think Ben Roethlisberger was top tier anymore. He can still win games, but he can also go out and throw five interceptions and talk about retirement and not being on the same page with anybody on his team. It seems like he doesn't see himself as elite much of the time. He can still have an elite performance. And I've used that word a lot, and it's ironic because I mentioned Flacco, of course. But most weeks, Ben Roethlisberger's not even top 10 these days in terms of somebody I would consistently want on the field. Le'Veon Bell's absence shouldn't mean as much as it has because of all the weaponry and all of what they can do in the pass game. And we've seen a little bit from James Conner. But we know how good Le'Veon Bell is. Overall, he and Ty Gurley are the two best backs in the league. You could throw David Johnson in there, but Arizona and their new head coach and their new system, they don't seem to know how to utilize him because his touches are drastically down. And you could put maybe an Ezekiel Elliott in there. I would not. Not right now, but we're not seeing the best from Zeke because of a terrible offensive line in Dallas. And the other guy you could put in there is Kamara, but you're about to see Kamara's numbers go down because Mark Ingram's coming back from suspension. That's the dude who could probably have 2,500 yards if it was just him. He is fantastic. But the defense for the Pittsburgh Steelers and for the Atlanta Falcons, and the reason I mentioned those two teams together is because that was my Super Bowl pick prior to the year. The defense is putrid. 30th out of 32, with just the Bucks and the Chiefs beneath them. We know how bad both those teams are. We saw what Mitch Trubisky did on Sunday to Tampa Bay. We've seen how people have just carved up the field on the Chiefs, and Pat Mahomes has had to go crazy in order to keep these guys in games. The Falcons are 28th out of 32. Pittsburgh's given up 1,682 total yards. Atlanta, 1,612. Steelers, 26th in points given up. Falcons 30th. Atlanta took a couple of bad injuries early in the season to their defense. They just don't look right. And offensively, 
Sarkeesian you just don't trust. And then with the Steelers, I, I don't know. I thought the defense was going to be better than this. But ever since Ryan Chazier has gone down, they're terrible. And especially on the back end, that secondary is absolutely atrocious. So my Super Bowl pick is wrong. I will be first to admit that. This is not going to happen. Both those teams might make the playoffs, but there's no way that I can stick with that pick. Number two, backups are still backups. Case Keenum, Monday for the Denver Broncos. Wide open to Marius Thomas, outside the numbers, down the right side. It's a game winner against the undefeated Chiefs, and he missed him. That's an $18 million a year quarterback right there, folks. He did not stick with the Rams. Mike Zimmer could not seemingly wait to move on from him in Minnesota, would never really give him props. I thought he played well for the Vikings. I still think he was an upgrade for the Denver Broncos over Trevor Simeon, who is now a backup to Kirk Cousins. But a backup is a backup. Nick Foles was awful to open the year. Carson Wentz probably was pushed back a week faster than needed as a result of it. He won a Super Bowl last year, did Nick Foles. So did Trent Dilfer, so did Brad Johnson, so did a number of other guys that are not going to be Hall of Famers. Nick Foles, nobody was willing to give up anywhere near what the Eagles wanted for him. The Eagles needed to keep him as a backup. They, You want a good backup on your football team. But Nick Foles is not a starter. We have seen this throughout the course of his career. He is not a week-to-week starter. He's a guy that can win you some games. I undervalued him going into the playoffs, picked the Eagles to lose every one of the playoff games they played in, and Foles was admirable, and he played very well, quite frankly, during the postseason. But he's not a long-term starter. And then we get to the main one, Ryan Fitzpatrick, behind a... Nice scheme from Todd Monken. The OC there, who used to coach at Southern Miss, took a team that was basically useless, that had won no games, and all of a sudden turned them into a power in Conference USA. Scored a ton of points. They've got Mike Evans. They've got Deshaun Jackson. They have O.J. Howard. He's down now for a couple of weeks with an injury. They do not have a running game there to speak of, but they scored a ton of points. Fitzpatrick racked up 400 yards in three straight games. Then he was terrible in the first half against the Steelers. Almost came back to win that game because of how bad Pittsburgh's defense is. We just talked about that. And then on Sunday was absolutely embarrassed by the Bears. And now he's on the bench. Just like he should be. And I'm not suggesting that Jameis Winston is a long-term starter either. I am suggesting that once the Fitz quote magic unquote was beginning to waver, you bail on that guy. Dude's been in the league for 13 years. We've seen what he can do. We've seen him win games. We've seen him win games here in Nashville. We saw him win in New York. We've seen him win in Buffalo. We have seen him win games. But you're not going to win playoff games. Maybe you win one or two with him. But he's not a guy that you're going to stick with long term. I don't know that the Bucks have a quarterback. But what we've seen is the guys that we thought were backups going into the year or maybe even towards the end of last season in the case of Foles, those guys are still pretty much backups. They're not elite quarterbacks. They're not top 10 quarterbacks. They are guys that can get you by. Unfortunately, my Denver Broncos have one of them as a starting quarterback. Hopefully he plays better than he did on Monday night. Next, Baker Mayfield. I love Sam Darnold. I have said this many times. I thought that Todd Bowles was going to be better than he's proven to be. But the Jets have virtually no help for their rookie quarterback. Quincy Anuwa is basically the top target, along with Robbie Anderson. They've got Crowell and they've got Bilal Powell. 
who always finds his way onto my fantasy team. He's on my bench right now, but he's on the team. But as I'm watching the Cleveland Browns, and there are weapons there. Juice Landry, Callaway, David Njoku, solid young running back in Nick Chubb, and a very young but very talented defense led by a stud in Miles Garrett, and he's not the only guy on that team. Denzel Ward, the fourth pick, I believe, in this past year's draft, is a superstar in the making that's already making big plays. But with those pieces, Baker Mayfield is perfect for the 2018 you got to have an athlete at quarterback NFL. The pocket passer has died before our very eyes. There are a few guys still out there, but they are the top of the top of the heap when it comes to that. Much of what's coming, the guys that scouts are starting to pay attention to, the guys that we're seeing start games on Sundays, are the guys that can create on the run. They're the guys that can escape pressure. They're the guys that can move on their feet. Baker Mayfield, Deshaun Watson, Marcus Mariota, Carson Wentz, Pat Mahomes, even Josh Allen. We saw that hurdle move against the Vikings defense a couple of weeks ago. Plus, of course, there's still Russell Wilson. There's still Cam Newton. There's an underrated Blake Bortles when it comes to his athleticism. It is an athletic position. The era of the Peyton and Eli seems to be coming to an end. The more athletic you are at quarterback, it seems like you're going to get your opportunity to play right now. Sam Darnold is not a standstill quarterback, and I still love him, and I still think he's going to be good, and I think Bowles is going to be gone, and they're going to have to restructure that team. I think he could still be the guy. But he's maybe more of a Matt Stafford type right now. If I had to make one thought on the league today, it is that Baker Mayfield maybe should have been the first pick. The Browns may have gotten this right, if you can believe that. The Giants didn't. The Giants should have taken Sam Darnold, with all due respect to Saquon Barkley. Next, the Patriots are who we thought they were. That does not mean they're going to win the Super Bowl. It means they're going to win the AFC East. 38-7 to over the Dolphins. Everybody talking about how good Miami was going to be. Tannehill looks great. He's only lost one of his last 11 starts when he's been healthy. The defense is getting after it with the pass rush. They've got Amendola. They've got a couple of running backs that you like. Frank Gore, who's still in the league, still turning yardage. they got Kenyon Drake, a young talent out of Alabama. You like him. 38-7, beat down by the New England Patriots. Since 2003, the Pats are 72-19 and against the rest of the AFC East. Overall, against the rest of the NFL, they're 118-32. and I mention that because, and Peter King actually pointed this out, most people always talk about the dominance against the AFC East. It's the dominance against the NFL. Because it's a 788 win percentage against the East. It's a 786 win percentage against everybody else. I don't think they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. I honestly don't think they're going to make the Super Bowl this year because the defense is just not good enough. There are not the kind of playmakers across that defense that you need. And Brady just does not have enough weapons. It's yet to be determined what Josh Gordon's going to provide you. Gronk is still an absolute force. When they get Edelman back, that will change things. Chris Hogan can make plays. But we're comparing these guys to Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen or that Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, Brandon Cooks triumvirate out at out with the uh, L.A. Rams. 
or the Bucks receiving core or some of these other offenses across the league. They may have made a bad draft pick in Sony Michelle when they had other things that they needed to address. And Brady has not even played very well. But they're still going to win the AFC East because the Bills are awful. The Jets appear to be awful. And Miami is not good enough to get over the hump when they see New England across from them. Number five, right here in Nashville, the Titans are not a fluke, ladies and gentlemen. The Eagles are not great. Their secondary is one of the worst in the league this year, and by yardage totals, it's the second worst in the history of the Eagles franchise. The loss of Rodney McLeod hurts them mightily, but they haven't been able to stop just about anybody this year. They are a great, great top-of-the-line run defense, second in the NFL. Just terrific. You saw it on Sunday. Titans had no room to run at all. Carson Wentz had a good day. Not a, maybe not a great day, but a good day. You know how special a talent he is. Aguilar's out here dropping balls. Jordan Matthews is catching touchdowns. Zach Ertz is a stud. Dallas Goddard, the tight end on the other side, is basically a Zach Ertz clone. So you basically have two of those guys once Goddard really gets up to speed. But those two on the field together is going to be a lot of fun to watch in this Doug Peterson offense. They're still using the RPO, maybe not quite as much. Right now, as Wentz gets more and more comfortable, I'm sure that they will put that back in to a higher percentage. But the point here is that the Tennessee Titans are 3-1, and 2-0 and in the AFC South, and it is absolutely 100% legitimate. Mariota looked great on Sunday. The play calling from Matt LaFleur was inspired. And you saw now that he's getting some of his weapons back and he's getting his quarterback back, you see the trust he has in Mariota, first of all, but he's taking shots downfield and he knows that he might have a legitimate wide receiver number one in Corey Davis, who has 161 yards in his first touchdown on Sunday in overtime to defeat the defending world champions. It's not the most dynamic offense you've ever seen, but they are trying. Matt LaFleur, you can tell, is trying schematically to mimic as much as he can from what he learned in his time in Los Angeles under Sean McVay, who is the brightest offensive mind I've seen in quite some time in the NFL. But the Titans being 3-1, and one, this week they'd better go to Buffalo and handle business. If they go up there and they beat the brakes off the Bills, that's what good teams do. They stomp on the throat of the lesser man. If they come back to Nissan, 4-1, and one, against a pretty good Ravens team. The entire country is going to call that one of the biggest games in the AFC to that point in the season. If they go up to Buffalo and lose, then everybody will be back off the bandwagon. I'm not saying the Titans are the best team in the AFC. I am saying that right now, them and Jacksonville seem to be head and shoulders above the Texans and the Colts overall, especially from a coaching standpoint. Don't love Bill O'Brien. Frank Reich, it's still too early to tell. Andrew Luck with a great comeback attempt, certainly on Sunday, throwing four touchdown passes. Watson has a bad offensive line in front of him. There are holes in those two rosters. The Tennessee Titans, though, are legit. So that's five of the big six. When we come back, I'll give you the big six, the biggest takeaway right now from the NFL. And we'll do the top six, the big six, the list of six in college football. Stick around, Big Six, 104.5.
Welcome back. This is the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. We're going to do the Big Six, the list of six from college football in terms of things that are sticking around. We talked about balance off the top of this show. Not being someone that reacts too quickly. Someone that actually sits back, shows some wisdom, and pays attention to what's going on before reacting. It's not what this business is about. It's not what my business is about at all. My business is about overreacting to everything day in and day out for the sole purpose of having people tune into the show, whether they like you or not, to either confirm their worldview or explain why they dislike you. The 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 old Howard Stern private parts philosophy of I tune in because I want to see what he'll say next. And then the people that don't listen to him or that don't like him rather listen more often because of the same reason. So let's do the final takeaway, the big six, the biggest takeaway from the NFL. The Rams are the best team in the league. Sean McVay's magic and the scheming alone that we saw against the Minnesota Vikings were on three touchdowns in a row. Anthony Barr, as great a football player as he is, was caught in total mismatches against wide receivers, which led to those scores for Jared Goff and the Rams' offense. This was schematic sorcery from Sean McVay, who has come out and said, everyone thinks this offense is complicated. It's not. The magic of what Sean McVay is doing with the Rams is that it's all very simple, but it looks very complicated. To me, that's the difference between what he does and what Kyle Shanahan does. Kyle Shanahan's stuff is complicated. Jimmy Garoppolo was having trouble still trying to acclimate to it all before the injury that cost him his season. It's the opposite in L.A., and you see how free they play as a result. Jared Goff's playing out of his mind. The receivers are all out here creating space. The Rams are second in the NFL in yards. Jared Goff completing 72% of his throws with a 10.4-yard average per attempt, which is almost twice as much, by the way, as Andrew Luck is doing in Indianapolis. 11 touchdowns for Goff to just two picks. The team has a net passer rating of 126, averaging 343 passing yards per game. Fifth in the league in rushing without even trying. Todd Gurley, it's not that he's an afterthought, but he's just kind of out there. I mean, he had a good game against Minnesota, and he's great, but they don't necessarily rely on him the way that you would necessarily expect a team to do because they have found other ways. They'll use him anytime they need him, and he's fresher because they don't have to kill him with carries anymore. Third in the league in receiving, behind Pittsburgh by 8 yards and Tampa Bay by less than 100. Then on defense, they're tied for 8th in interceptions. 10th in overall defense, but 6th in points allowed, just giving up 16.8 per game. The offense is brilliant. Wade Phillips, I could literally do an entire show for you going through numbers to illustrate that Wade Phillips is one of the greatest defensive coordinators in the history of the NFL. Not a great head coach but as good a D.C. as you will ever see. But what they're doing, what the Rams are doing, what's scariest about it, is that it's sustainable. That's what we talked about in that first segment. Things that are sustainable. Things that are balanced. It's why it can work. What the Rams are doing right now, I don't see this falling off, folks. It's a bad division, first of all. Seahawks are pretty much gone. The Cardinals have a new coach in Steve Wilkes, a rookie quarterback in Josh Rosen. They've got Larry Fitzgerald. They are misusing David Johnson. 
and they aren't doing a whole lot else. The defense is not very good either. And then, of course, San Francisco loses Jimmy Garoppolo, and they lose Jarek McKinnon, and their season basically came to an end right there. The Rams will have this thing wrapped up in like four weeks. But we already know they're going to win the division today. They're so good, they can take one. They can take an injury to one of those wide receivers and still should make the Super Bowl. To me, they are head and shoulders better than anybody in the NFL right now. That is this big six in the NFL. Now let's talk college football for the remainder of this segment and maybe into the final segment. Heisman right now seems to be a two-person race. Now that could change. There's a lot of football left to be played, but Tua Tonga-Vailoa at Alabama, Kyler Murray at Oklahoma, the two quarterbacks. I don't always agree with Clay Travis, my old boss. Of course, you hear him every morning, 5 a.m. here on 104.5 The Zone, outkick the coverage. But he always says, look, Heisman has to go to a quarterback, just like the MVP in the NFL has to go to a quarterback because of how important the position is. I don't necessarily agree to the extent that he does, but I certainly do this year. Tua Tonga-Vailoa, 66 of 88, 1,161 yards, 75% completion percentage, averaging 13.2 yards per throw and attempt and completion, 238.3 passer rating. Kyler Murray, 77 for 109, 1,460 yards, almost 300 yards more than Tua. 13.4 average, a little bit more than Tua. 71% completion percentage, 4% lower than Tua. 230.9 rating, also absurd. Two of 14 touchdowns, zero interceptions. Kyler Murray, 17 touchdowns, two interceptions. Kyler's played more football. Two has been out for halves because of how dominant Alabama's been, and Oklahoma's defense is not Alabama's defense. But one of those two guys should be on track to win the Heisman. We're going to see Kyler Murray against Texas in the Red River shootout on Saturday. I still don't think Texas is that good, but they are top 20, so they turned the corner a little bit after losing to Maryland for the second straight year. And I still believe Tom Herman is overrated in terms of the hype that he got going in. But that'll be an interesting football game. Still think Oklahoma probably blows them out by three touchdowns. But I also want to mention Will Greer real quickly. Will Greer at West Virginia has more yards than both of those guys. He has a 72% completion percentage, which is higher than Murray, still a little bit lower than Tua. He's got 17 touchdowns, same as Kyler, three more than Tua. Three interceptions, so just one more pick than Kyler Murray, and he has a 200.7 rating. Now, I'm not saying Will Greer's going to win the Heisman. I'm saying that Will Greer's playing really good football, and I'm not sure people are paying attention to how good West Virginia looks to be right now. They're not a college football playoff team. The defense is still not that great, but it's better than people thought. But Will Greer and David Sills and all of the guys that they have on that West Virginia offense for Dana Holgerson are straight up legit, and they're just nasty. Also nasty is Georgia. Number two is that Georgia proved on Saturday that unlike in the NFL, when you just cannot do this against anybody, and that's why the Titans have to go handle business against the Bills, Georgia proved you can sleepwalk in college football if you're good enough. Because that's what they did on Saturday against Tennessee. Tennessee played better. They did. They showed some flashes. They showed some things you liked. But they still got blown out in the end in terms of the score column. Because Georgia finally just sort of woke up and said, okay, we've had enough of this. 
Jeremy Banks fumbled it, and that was all she wrote. But Georgia didn't even really try. They had that fumble pop into the hands of the player, and he takes it into the end zone in the first quarter. They did not treat Tennessee seriously, and they still beat them pretty handily in the score column. Didn't cover the spread, but whatever. In college football, there is a wide difference between the great teams and the ones that are utter dumpster fires. Even an utter dumpster fire in the NFL, if you show up not ready to play, you might get beat. Talk to the Minnesota Vikings about what happened against Buffalo two weeks ago. You can win in the NFL on any given Sunday. That's why it's out there. There's not a whole lot of any given Saturdays out there. Now, you've got to show up against teams that are hungry, but most of the time, if you're a dominant Power 5 team playing a very average or even below average Power 5 team, you're going to blow them out. The ones you have to worry about are when you're a Power 5 team playing like a mid-major, one of the teams that has no automatic qualifiers, one that's getting paid usually to come in and play you, but is sneaky good, like an Appalachian State, for example, or... You know, there are a few other examples. And again, those are few and far between. That's why we actually remember what App State did to Michigan. But in college football, there still is a hierarchy. Number three, this is one I did not see coming. Kentucky's legit. Benny Snell, fourth in the nation in running. He is averaging over five yards per rush, eight touchdowns, 639 yards on the ground. He was expected to be really good again because he is really good. We knew he was going to be good coming into the year. The defense, though, we did not know was going to be pretty good. They brought a lot of guys back that they had last year. But it doesn't matter if you bring a lot of guys back if they were awful. And that's what we kind of thought about most of these guys. That they were sort of decent recruits for Stoops, but they never materialized. Now they're starting to materialize. That defense is ranked 33 in the nation right now overall in yards. That doesn't sound good. But it's a bend but don't break group. How do I know that? Because they're tied for third in the country in average points allowed per game, surrendering just 12.6 per contest. That ties them with Auburn. And it's only one more point than Washington, or they'd be in first. Oh, well, who have they beaten? Well, Florida is not terrible, apparently. And that was on the road in the swamp. South Carolina is not terrible at all, and they beat them by two touchdowns. Mississippi State was top 15 in the nation, and Kentucky beat them 28-7. to Completely stymied Nick Fitzgerald and that Joe Moorhead offense completely. I'm stunned. I haven't been more wrong about anything on this show than I have this Kentucky football team. I thought 5-7, and seven, maybe even 4-8. and eight. I'm looking at the rest of the schedule now. They got a tough one at A&M on Saturday. That should be a whale of a game. Then they get Vandy. Then they go to Mizzou. Let's say they go one and two there. Maybe they go two and one, but let's say they go one and two. They're six and two. They lose to Georgia and fall to six and three. Then they get Tennessee, Middle Tennessee State, and Louisville to end the season. At worst, they're eight and four. Maybe they're nine and three. So credit to them. I did not see this coming in any respect. Not at all. All right, that's half of the big six takeaways in college football to this point in the season. When we come back in the final segment, the other three. And a little uh, what the what Wednesday. Stick around. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone.
final segment of the program. Glad to have you with us. It's the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartzone. Also, read my stuff, 104.5thezone.com slash Big Six blog. All my TV columns, all my sports stuff. There's takeaways after every Vols game, after every Titans game. Ton of television and film reviews. I'll have a Venom review up for you either tomorrow or Friday. But it will be up in plenty of time. It'll be up before the you'll have a chance to see the film. So I'll let you know what I think of Tom Hardy and Marvel's latest. Three more takeaways from college football. We already went through three of them on that first side. And that was Tua versus Kyler for Heisman. And just wanted to give a little bit of credit to Will Greer. Kentucky being completely legit. And Georgia proving you can sleepwalk in college football, which is something you generally cannot do in the NFL. Number four. Arkansas, Nebraska, UCLA are a combined 1-12 and this season. Scott Frost with that comment a few weeks ago, it's going to get worse before it gets better. He's right. I love his honesty. I love pretty much everything about Scott Frost. I also think that Central Florida was a perfect place for him, and there's a problem with Nebraska, and that is that in 2018, it's really hard to get people to come to Nebraska because... The problem with getting them to play football in Nebraska is that you have to get them to want to live in Nebraska. And unlike the mid-90s when Tom Osborne and Tommy Stewart and that crew were running roughshod, the 18-year-olds, the 17-year-olds that are signing letters of intent don't remember when Nebraska was good. They haven't been alive, certainly not cognizant of anything, in an era where Nebraska has mattered. So you're trying to get people to come to a school that was once really good in football that has been supplanted by many other programs in a very non-advantageous place in the country. That is a tough road to hoe. Chip Kelly, I don't love him as much as some, but I know he's really good at his job. The UCLA offense, we know all about Chip Kelly's offense, right? The UCLA offense right now is ranked 128th out of 130 in the country. That's not good. UCF last year with Scott Frost back to Nebraska for a minute. Nebraska is sitting at 98th in offense. Central Florida is 28th with Josh Heupel. Arkansas is 89th under Chad Morris. They might be the worst team in the SEC. Yes, folks, they might be worse than the Tennessee Volunteers. More embarrassing for the Hogs is being 89th in total offense, while Arkansas State is 26th. The defenses, average. 52, 56, and tied for 64th for Arkansas. These are three teams that aren't just struggling. They are bottom of the barrel struggling right now in three spots where there are fan bases. Now, UCLA football... USC is really kind of the team out in L.A. They're even bigger than the Rams and the Raiders or the Chargers or anybody else. They might not be bigger than the L.A. Raiders during the hype when Ice Cube and Dre and all those guys are out there wearing their stuff. But generally speaking, USC is more it. That's where you see Will Ferrell. That's where you see Snoop Dogg. I haven't seen Will Ferrell on any Rams sidelines. Maybe that'll change with what Sean McVay is doing there. But they are struggling Nebraska wants to win. Most of their fans do remember them being dominant. Arkansas is a team that got used to winning at least a decent clip under Houston Nutt and then certainly winning with Bobby Petrino. 
And Chad Morris came in with a lot of hype, but it's either going to take some time or they're not going to give him enough time down there. Number five, LSU will have three losses at the end of this year. I know they're 5-0, and and they are way better than I thought they were going to be. But they're going to lose three of their last seven games. They play at Florida on Saturday. That's dangerous. They lose to Georgia a week later. Then they play Mississippi State. That is treacherous. Then they lose to Alabama on November 3rd. They'll crush Arkansas. They'll destroy Rice. And then they go to Texas A&M to play Jimbo Fisher in what should be a very intriguing, interesting matchup between two pretty good teams that you don't really want to play against in terms of LSU and A&M. The LSU defense ranked 54th overall in yards. 12th in points, though. That's solid. 48th in offense. Coach O has been better than I expected, no doubt. But what is coming is really difficult. I know they played Auburn and were able to win that game. I don't think the Miami win is that special, even though they've been good since that point. I just don't think Miami's that good. I think LSU's going to finish the season 9-3. and They're 5-0 and right now. That doesn't mean that Coach O is going to be on the hot seat now. I think he's sort of quelled that at least for another year. I still don't think he's a head coach. But they're a lot better than I thought, and it's mainly because it helps when you actually have a quarterback out there. And then, number six. Notre Dame and Washington could both be playoff bound. Or certainly one of them. With the win over Stanford, Notre Dame's 5-0. and They're going to go to Blacksburg Saturday. That's not easy. But VT's not very good right now, and they're banged up. They probably win there. They go to 6-0. and then they get Pittsburgh, win. Navy, win. A mediocre Northwestern team, win. A bad Florida State team at home, win. Syracuse, okay, that could be a little dangerous. Dino uh, is doing a good job there. And then they play a very pedestrian USC team to finish. It is possible. Possible they run the table. At worst, they should lose one. They'll be in the mix for the Final Four as a result even though we can look back and say, yeah, Vandy should have beaten them two weeks ago. They let them off the hook. In the words of the late Dennis Green, they definitely should have beaten them. Now for Washington, they lost to Auburn in the best time you could lose to Auburn. The first week of the, the first weekend, when you see a lot of weird things happen, it was a close football game. Auburn's not a bad football team at all. Then, since that point, four wins, including just throttling a ranked BYU team this past week. They go to Eugene in two weeks to play Oregon. I think they're going to win there. Colorado comes up after that. They're not bad, but they're going to get them at home, and I think they'll beat them. Stanford, they're going to get at home as well, which is big to get them at home on November the 3rd. I think they're better than Stanford. Those are the stumbling blocks. Washington should also win out. So if Washington and Notre Dame win out, you've got a one-loss Huskies team and an undefeated Notre Dame team. Could be chaos, because Clemson may still be undefeated. I don't know what's going to happen there. Georgia, Alabama. Alabama's going to be undefeated. No one is going to beat them this year. Georgia should be undefeated. I don't see anybody beating them this year. So there's going to be some intriguing things, because I have not talked about Ohio State, who is still undefeated by the skin of their teeth against Penn State on Saturday. And a couple of other teams that would be paying attention to. Oklahoma, certainly. So this is going to get real interesting in terms of a debate down the stretch. All right, I was going to do What the What Wednesday. 
But I always realize that an hour runs really quickly on this show. I hope you feel like it runs quickly on this show. So we're out of time. So we'll save What the What Wednesday, and we'll bring it back next week. We've spent so much time talking about pigskin today. Hope you've dug that. Think about my comments on balance in everything that you're doing in your life. Consider those things. All right, I'll be back on Friday, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed the show. Stick around. we got Vol Calls coming up next. Then we got Global Golf Radio. And then we got Christopher Martell. Pred season starts tomorrow. You don't want to miss the neutral zone tonight. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, saying goodnight.